Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything to do with the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Cowie, I am a drummer turns comedy singer-songwriter and now apparently a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians. Like today, where we chat to Katie Tunstall. Fantastic songwriter, now living in Los Angeles, and this, I tell you right now, is a fantastic episode. But let me just say right off the bat, if you're after a professional interview with professional questions coupled with professional answers, then tune out now, because that's not what this is. It's two people just shooting the breeze, and I tell you this much, by the end of this podcast, you're going to wonder why nobody said to you, Katie Tunstall is absolutely hilarious, because she is full of brilliant stories, just fantastic info on her career. Really, really, I mean, so good. So, so good. And I've got to say a big thank you to Simon and Brian from Soda Jerker. Great podcast, sodajerker.com. I'm going to tell you about all those guys in a little bit, but no nonsense. We're going to cut straight to it. Right after I tell you, this podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio and scottcowie.com, of course. But let's get right down to it. Katie Tunstall in the house. Right, let's get this right out in the open, okay? Now, true or false, did you once play in front of three men and a dog? It's true! <laughs> ding, ding! <laughs> I was actually telling someone that story the other day because they were asking me what was the smallest crowd I'd ever played to, and it was in the Half Moon pub in Putney. No way! And, yes, and I was trying to come down to do showcases for people, and it was one dude who I guess was some sort of promoter. I don't even think he was an A&R man. Um, my manager and a bloke with a dog. It was kind of, it, and it was kind of fantastic. I don't remember feeling depressed. I remember thinking this, this is a moment that I will remember. And not everyone can say that that actually happened for them. So it was an alignment of planets that allowed me to have the most cliched gig of all time. That's amazing. Now, I know that you've, you've told this story on TV, but I want this for the podcast as well, right? <laughs> you, the gig in Ireland, the girl in the front row, yeah. you know what I'm talking about, don't oh, you? Oh, I know what you're talking about. So, I've always had a very healthy lesbian following. There, there's quite, I think there's quite a lot of gay girls around the world who are absolutely convinced that I'm gay, and it's all a big charade, but, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll have to keep them waiting on that one. But, um... <laughs> It's it's not happened yet, ladies. But, um, yeah, so the front row of gigs is very often taken up by very enthusiastic, drunk gay girls. And I'm sort of used to that. And um, so I'm playing this gig in Ireland. And one thing that they do in Ireland, which is a kind of blessing and a curse, is that they'll, if you're playing on a Friday and Saturday, they'll often give you a midnight slot, which is uh, definitely going to alter your set list. Also, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll definitely impart that. Um, no slow songs, no quiet songs. Um, and so I get ready to do this gig. I think it was, uh, I forget what it was actually, maybe Olympia or somewhere like that and um, in Dublin. And I'm playing away and there's a girl in front who is, I suppose, acting in a slightly amorous way towards me. And she's shout, keep shouting my name, keep shout, trying to get my attention in the things up. And finally, I'm like, just what? What is it? What do you want to know? What do you need from me? I'm playing for you. You bought a ticket. What do you want? And she goes, Katie, you're a lesbian. And I'm on stage. I start ending myself laughing. And I say, you can't say that. And then everyone's going, what did she say? What did she say, Katie? And I'm like, that girl just said I was a lesbian. And, you know, cute uproarious shouting from the whole crowd and I said you know I don't really want to go into that right now up here on stage and laughing laughing and I was like okay we're done here let's carry on with the gig anyway girl keeps shouting at me keeps shouting my name and I'm like I'm starting to get quite pissed off with this girl like what is going on what do you want now and she ends up throwing this paper airplane up onto the stage and I ignore it and carry on with the show and uh, at the end, I'm in my dressing room, and one of my guitar techs comes up and says, Katie, we really think you should read this. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, 
for God's sake, what is it? And I open it up and it says, we were saying legend. (laughs) (laughs) So now, because of that story, in between songs, without a doubt, every single gig, someone shouts, Katie, you're a legend. (laughs) Uh, So it's a bit of an in-joke now, which is quite... It's still funny. If, if anybody out there that's listening to this that does those cartoon animation things, please take this audio footage, reenact this, put it on YouTube, and I think we're guaranteed a viral. Please make it happen. Somebody out there. I wish I'd kept the original note. It's folklore now. <laughs> Any other crazy interactions uh, with fans over the years? With fans? Um well, one of my one of my um, more um, disturbing stories is because someone asked me what was the worst thing I ever got sent by a fan. There's been some spectacular fan art over the years, which the whole fan art thing really interests me because they'll sometimes do... A, I mean, some of them are very good. Some of them are absolutely dreadful. And they'll do a picture of you where you look like, you know, you've been in a terrible accident. And they'll give it to you and... It's also just the fact that they think that you want to put that on the wall. It's really strange. Like, I wouldn't put a good picture of myself on the wall. (laughs) So that's sort of weird. Sometimes they'll give you, like, you know, a a nice cushion where they've had a picture of you and them printed on it. And you're like, okay, I'm going to put that on my couch. And um, anyway, so that's quite funny. And and so, you know, I get sent little prezzies very generously by fans. I have to say that sometimes do get baked goods, and I've never partaken in a fan baked goods. Always slightly worried about that. Um, but so I got sent this package, and uh, just in a jiffy bag, and I open it up, and I was like, "What is this?" And I open it. It's got a letter. It's got two petri dishes in it, one empty, one full of yellow liquid, and I read the letter and. It, the guy, it, some guy is saying, Dear Katie, I'm a huge fan. Um, I like to collect personal items from the people that I'm fans of. Uh, I would love to have a sample of your sweat. Oh, nice. Would you mind collecting some and putting it into the provided Petri dish? I have given you some of mine in return. Oh, should my you God. want some? So after that, I was like, Okay. This is the White House. If anyone sends a jiffy bag, one of you is opening it because I'm not. It was so disgusting. (laughs) And then the the other one that springs to mind was um, I was playing a gig in Milan and it was really early doors. It was I'd not been going long and I was a bit inexperienced and we were playing a kind of slightly bigger venue. And we're on the stage, and I noticed that there's a spiral staircase that goes from the stage up into the lighting rig. And didn't pay much attention to it. Anyway, we're on stage, we finished the gig. The, the stage goes absolutely, completely black after the end of the gig. And usually there's a few lights that you can see, but it went pitch black. And all the guys from the band had walked off already. They'd left the stage. I turned to walk off stage, but this, you know, we're coming back onto the encore. I turned to walk off the stage, and this guy who basically looks like Jaws from James Bond, he's like six foot seven and huge, grabs me by the arms and starts going, Play another song, Diddy, play another song. <laughs> and I'm like, What the fuck is this guy doing on stage? It is pitch black, and he's grabbed me. And I've always, and the thing that was most shocking about it, it was that I've always had this kind of, like, basically subconscious belief that if I was ever attacked, I would turn into some kind of crouching tiger, hidden dragon ninja. (laughs) And I would easily be able to, like, kick someone in the throat, pin them down, and that was that, game over. You know, call the police someone. (laughs) And this guy grabs me by the arms, so I can't move my arms, and honestly, I was like a sparrow, just going and couldn't move and was completely like, I was so annoyed at myself. I was like, I've got to take this guy out and I can't move. And, um, and finally, someone came on stage and kind of get, got him off me. And he promptly um, got away from them as well and walked straight off the front of the stage and got taken away in an ambulance. <laughs> No. And so we reckoned that he must have been watching the gig. He must have got up this this 
staircase and was watching the gig just getting hammered and then kind of attacked me in a very friendly way. It was very strange. <laughs> as, as friend- but no one died. I don't think anyone died. Uh, as fr- I can't completely say that no one died. <laughs> as friendly as an attack can be. It was as, as friendly as an attack can be. It I was th- as friendly as an attack, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I tell you what, listen, once again, our graphic, our potential graphic uh, digital animation person is going to have an absolute field day with this podcast. <laughs> Go for it, do it. <laughs> um, I'm, going to, I'm going to quote from you. You ready for this? Yeah. I'm the yes, worst, I'm ready, oh my God. I'm the worst party guitarist ever. Okay. Yeah, Can so true. Please elaborate on this. Okay. So, I never learnt any music. I never learnt songs. I never got, I, I, I like got on the guitar, when I started guitar, I was 15, and even at that point, I'd hardly really got into any music. I wasn't in a group of friends who were particularly into music. You know, I was listening to Wham! and Whitney Houston and Boy George and whatever was playing on the telly or on the radio, and then there was a kind of meeting of events when I was about 15, first of all. I mean, I'd learned classical piano and, you, you know, knew my way around chords and stuff like that, and I'd started to write some songs-ish, but on the piano, and they were rubbish. And then at 15, my dad also got a satellite dish, and so that kind of changed my life because we got MTV, and I saw Beck for the first time, and I saw Stone Roses, and like Weezer and... Fool's Gold had come out, and that just basically changed everything for me. So I was like, oh, that, I'd like to make that. I, I relate to it. It sounds great, and I get it, and it makes me feel something. And, um, and, but instead of kind of going, ooh, I think I'll go back and have a look at their back catalogue, <laughs> I didn't do that, and I just picked up the guitar and went, right, I'm just going to write my own stuff. And I've never really been a very studious musician, so I always... I'll hear an album, like Hunky Dory, I hear an album I absolutely love that blows me away. And I don't then go and listen to everything else that person's done. I sort of just move on to the next thing that's exciting. And um, So I'm not, I'm not really an archivist or an archaeologist in that way. Um, and I think that that's really actually a really valuable thing to do, is to go and see what these other people have made, who they were listening to at the time. But I just haven't had the... the concentration or focus to do that I've just been too interested in making my own stuff um, and Beck I suppose out of all of them was the one that is the one artist that I've I've listened I've kept up with the most in terms of everything they've done and I have got all his records and I know his music probably more better than any other artist but um, it kind of meant that I never sat and learned songs I learned the chords and then I went off and wrote music and so there's two things that I can't stand. One is being given a guitar at a party and uh, because I just can't play anything. And, I, and the other thing is I have enough trouble remembering my own lyrics. <laughs> I can, I can, like I did a Bob Dylan tribute thing where I had to remember like 75 verses of Tangled <laughs> Up in Blue. And, you know, the audience is full of die-hard Bob, Bob Dylan yeah. fans who will know if I say and instead of or, you know? And so... I, and I learned it, and this is how I this is how I got by at school as well. I just learn it, like cram it a few nights before I've got it, and then it's gone. Like it just gets deleted from my brain. It's really annoying because there's a load of useless shit in there. That it would be much better if I had some really good songs in there that, of other people's. But I just don't have a capacity for remembering lyrics. And then so they'll you know they'll say play this, and I'm like. And then the other thing that's really annoying at parties is no one else knows the lyrics either. <laughs> so they think that you'll get the guitar and say, no, just go, and sing along and then sing the chorus. I'm like, no, it's not me, sorry. I'll play the spoons while you play the guitar and remember all the lyrics. So what usually happens is I'll get the guitar and then someone Googles the lyrics and we're reading the lyrics. It's, it's so lame. Uh, well, so it's don't like that. You, you can't really play your own songs at a party either, can you not? That no, really not, really not. And and then the other thing I hate is jamming. I'm just so anti-jamming, I'm afraid. If it's Jimi Hendrix and he comes back alive and he says, want to jam? All right, Jimmy, I'm up for that. Otherwise, 
no jamming for tungsten. <laughs> I don't jam. <laughs> I'll make myself. If you drop that, yeah. <laughs> I'll make myself available been... for Hendrix, but Hendrix only. Mm. Hendrix only. And you know, I I cannot recount a story to you when I've been impressed by a jam. <laughs> I've got to say, so I avoid at all costs. That's actually quite a. That's that's quite an interesting statement, that because I'm trying to reflect back um, for any time. That's actually true. Jamming's pretty. It's pretty. Um, I want to I, I, I use. I, I want to use the W. But oh well, as we're swearing, it's it's pretty wanky, really, isn't it? Um, it is wanky, and it's you know, it, and it's the thing is also this is coming from a place of lack of experience collaborating, which I have. I've always been a solo artist. And I do collaborate now and then, I'll write with other people, but I'm a bossy cow when it comes to writing music. And I am really in, I'm in, I'm in awe of people like Radiohead who can continue to work together and produce really interesting music that progresses because I don't really understand how, how you can manage that. It's such a huge ask to, to, to actually find individual creative fulfillment within a group of people who are growing up together and growing old together and developing in different ways from each other. And to actually all of you to be able to get fulfillment out of that situation is pretty incredible, I think. And I don't think it happens a lot of the time. I think there's, you know, from my experience of knowing people in bands, there's a lot of push me for you where, you know, there's compromises and there's understanding and there's learning what you're good at within that successful, you know, situation. But um, I would find it incredibly difficult to be in a band. But then if I found people I really, really wanted to work with, then maybe I wouldn't. Like Hendrix. Like Hendrix. (laughs) (laughs) Plus it must be quite difficult. Yeah, if Hendrix is coming back, if Hendrix is coming back, we get John Bonham back as well. So Bottom, Hendrix, and then I don't know, but Mama Cass, great band. Yeah, that sounds like a band without uh, yeah, a band without bass. Awesome. Um, but, uh, plus, it must, it must I'll be, play bass. Oh, of course, right, that would be pretty cool. Um, but it's, it must be quite difficult. See, when um, it, it's difficult enough of, of the people for the people that are kind of not famous, for lack of a better term, to do the kind of songwriting yeah. collaborations. But when you guys that have obviously got a, a big name getting together, it must be hard just to turn around to. to um, I bet you there's t- tons of stories of celebrities getting together. And they're so wanting to say, I don't want, I don't really want to do that chorus, and they're trying to be polite about it. When in their head, they're just thinking, yeah. that shit, I don't want to do that. Your idea's awful. Well, it's also a bit of a shark tank as well. I mean, if you've had success, then you're you're kind of fresh meat as well within a songwriting um, environment where you can, if you're selling, if you're selling music, then some, you know. Professional songwriters who aren't artists want to work with you, and um, and 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 that's in a negative way of looking at it because a lot of those people are excellent writers. But my my personal experience of kind of shocking on the third album, I did quite a lot of experimenting, just writing with other people, and it just it just made me want to kind of kill myself. <laughs> it was just really depressing, really depressing. Because some some of the sessions you're in, you're like, someone will say, oh, well, what about this bit? We don't really have anything. So let's just go, oh, yeah, baby. I'm like, uh, no, not going to do that, actually. Because that's not particularly personal to me. <laughs> and then, but, but then there's other, you know, there's one there's one guy that I collaborate with who's called Martin Tereffa. He, he's the guy I've written. I've written a lot of material with him, but I wrote most notably other side of the world and funny man. Um, and he is Scandinavian. And I think that he's Swedish and it's, it's a real, the damn Swedes. What's going on with them? Oh, they're, they're doing so many, stuff. so many amazing writers from, from the Scandi, they're ruling it. But, um, so with Martin, what I found immediately when I started writing with him, first of all, he's very fast, and that's great, because I, I, I like to be quick, and um, I can get very frustrated if it's taking a long time. And he's fast, and also he's... The thing that's brilliant about working with someone is where English isn't their first language is that he'll come up with these really weird 
nuances and turnarounds on words. So where you and I would naturally gravitate towards a lyric where the, the, the music suits the way that you say it in English. So, for example, I'm on the phone. <laughs> I'm on the phone. <laughs> they would, you know, he would just completely ignore it and just go, I'm on the phone. And I'm like, oh, that's a really weird way of saying that. And it makes you, it actually, instead of, instead of the predictable thing of reiterating what you're saying, it actually makes you listen harder because you're like, whoa, what did he mean by that? Because it doesn't sound right. So it piques your interest rather than, kind of doing what you expect and um but he's also hilarious martin i mean he's swedish and he's been he's been in um in london for about i don't know 15 20 years and i remember we were writing a song together and we're doing a middle eight and he goes katie the middle eight sounds so good it sounds like john lennon <laughs> i was like martin you can't say john lennon anymore you've been here for too long but well done <laughs> Love it. Listen, I want to hear more about your pet hates and I want to hear about Los Angeles and why you're now living there, okay? But now we've got to answer some emails. People email us in every week, KT, for some love advice, okay? So I've got Nora Germain on the other line. We're going to cut to that. We're going to come back with KT and we're going to answer you guys' emails. Here we go. Do you, do you, do you need love advice? Do you have a broken heart or pubic lies? Oh, oh, love advice. Who's that talking on the podcast? It's Nora Germain. We are going to answer your emails on love advice. So if you've got a lump on your balls, we're going to help you not be depressed. Nora Germain. Well, that's the greatest theme song I have ever heard. Okay. Hi, Scott slash Nora. See, it's once again, it's becoming a thing. It's becoming an established thing. The whole, Great. Know. Hi, Scott, Nora. This is from Colin from Exeter. And I'm sorry. Exeter, Exeter is in England. There you go. Oh, okay. Great. My, okay, Colin says, my girlfriend loves her music more than she loves me. She's always playing piano nonstop. She's currently studying for her master's. And her life totally revolves around music. I want to be supportive, but come on. Can't the stupid... <laughs> can't the stupid bitch make time for her boyfriend? I mean, what the hell? I feel like smashing the piano up while using her fat mother as the weapon. All her stupid concerts playing classical rubbish. It doesn't even sound like music anyway. I can't take this bullshit anymore. Should I finish it or tell her if she wants to continue dating the colonator, she's going to have to ditch the piano crap? What are your thoughts? So my answer for you, colonator, is twofold, okay? Here's number one. Number Getting one. Getting a master's in piano is really hard, and it's probably harder than you've realized, okay? And so if you think that she loves her music more than you, you're probably crazy, because master's students have an enormous amount of practice to do, and she probably loves you more. Point number two is that if you can't appreciate the beauty of being with a world-class classical pianist and you're completely insane, she doesn't deserve you. You don't deserve her. And the two of you should just totally split up because, I mean, if your problem is that she doesn't love you enough, then that's one thing and that's not true. But if your problem is that you hate classical piano, then you really screwed up because, you know, finding a woman that's that smart uh, and you know, brilliant and uh, talented is you know really so. Maybe you could hook up with the girl, uh, the model. Maybe the two of them, Sophie. Oh, that's long distance though. Anyway, Colin, uh, it's gonna be fine, buddy. But you know, you gotta uh, learn to appreciate classical music, man. It's really important. So uh, he's got to get interested in classical music but as far as the relationship goes which is the core of the issue that he's kind of wanting advice on uh, is he finishing with her? Is that the... Well is he finishing with her because he hates classical piano or is he finishing with her because he feels neglected by classical piano? It sounds like a bit of both to me sounds like he hates the thing because it's the one thing that he feels taking his girlfriend away from him Yeah, I don't think you should be with her. I think she should be with someone 
who understands the demands of getting her master's degree and who understands the beauty of and the majesty of being a fine classical musician. And, you know, maybe you need to be with someone who doesn't spend too much time doing other things. You know, maybe you want someone to pay more attention to you, Colin. And that's great, you know, just say it, you know. Go find her. If you, yeah. It sounds like he's too good for her. Uh, th that might be so. Kate from Dublin. Do you know where hey, Kate. Do you know where Dublin is? Ireland. Well done. Hi. Thank you. Scott, Nora, love the show. My boyfriend and I have been dating for two years and we live together. <laughs> I love him so much, but at times he purposely tries to make me feel jealous. Oh my. Last night he passionately kissed my best friend right in front of me at my 21st birthday party. I was very upset and angry, but he said he was just having a joke and that I should lighten up. He always shouts her name when we are making love. He says that I'm just a... <laughs> You're going to be okay, Scott. He says that I'm just imagining things, but he is often looking at a picture on the wall of her whilst it's happening. Not sure what to do. Please advise. Um... I'm really sorry, Kate, but I don't think this is going to work. Um, yeah, uh, gosh. I mean, any man that's not kissing you on your own freaking birthday has got to be an idiot. And, uh, I mean, you know, this is, I mean, never mind all the other stuff. I mean, this is just, yeah, you got to find a man that, uh, that's not making out with your girlfriend. I mean, you're a friend and it's a girl. You gotta, you gotta get a new man. I'm sorry, this is just not gonna work for me. Do you think she's lacking a sense of humor? <sighs> Look, I just, Kate, you know, woman to woman, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, really important to be with a man that you're comfortable with, mm -hmm. you know? You can't be, you know, why is this guy, why is he trying to make you jealous all the time? Like, what's the point of that? I mean, you know, you're already together. You're already doing the horizontal polka. I mean, you're giving the guy what he wants. You know, I mean, what's the, what's, I don't get it. I don't understand why he's acting this way. So, yeah, I would say, yeah, dump him. Yep. Is that uh, an expression obviously translated to America? Dump? The person. Dump thought, him? Yeah, I thought. Oh, it's just a breakup. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Send him on his way. I yeah. thought I thought it was just a, a British thing that for some reason, but it's not. Oh um, no! Yeah, no, we yeah yeah we say that yeah I got dumped you know, you, and then you, you got to clutching a bottle of tequila and you've got your pint of ice cream and I got oh yeah it's a big deal. That that's you've got experience in that. I'll take your word for it. Um, that kind of concludes our love advice. Um, we'll do a quick summary of what everybody's to do this week. Um, uh, oh, there's one that we didn't cover. We've got tons of emails, by the way. Thanks very much. Keep emailing in, um, emailing in skwmusic at gmail.com. Nora and I will do our best to get through all the emails. Uh, Colin from Exeter, uh, you've to, to, to... It's not going to work out, Nora says. The piano stuff, you to get rid of your girlfriend. Um, Kate, you've to get rid of your boyfriend. Um, everybody's to... Everybody's to get rid of everybody they're going out with. Yeah. Yeah, I think I that's... I feel like that's the way it usually goes. I'm really sorry that there aren't very many times that I say, you know, you guys should just stay together. But I just... You know, when it's not right, it's just... It's not you know, right. Life is too dang short. You know, you got to be with somebody you love and you got to love them all the way. If you're with somebody and you can't love them all the way, it's not going to work. So thanks very much. We've got a 100% get on the single bandwagon this week. So that's love, ladies and gentlemen. That is true love. Nora, mm -hmm. can you play some violin and play us out? Sure. What's the theme? The theme is miserable. Miserable? Misery. That's the theme of this week. <sighs> so... Can you uh, play this and just imagine um, all the misery that you've caused this week? For instance, the woman that's going to lose a boyfriend after, uh, you know, she's, or, or, you know, he's been 
having a good time with her best friend on her 21st birthday and everything that goes along with that. Uh, give us some misery on the violin. Well, I know you guys might be expecting some sort of sad classical violin thing, but in America, when we feel sad, we play the blues. So here you go. for a moment but you know just remember it'll all get better Nora Germain in the house ladies and gentlemen Nora Germain has done it once again give us some more of your pet hates when it comes to songs and music in general right (laughs) Um, well I'm really glad that well I think so other people might not but I think of so I got this sort of alarm bell in my brain where if I go, because I think that writing good songs is this really fine line between like the strongest gruyere available at the deli counter and doing something interesting and different. Because if you do something that's just interesting and different, it can just be very self-indulgent and actually not communicate with people very well. Um, whereas the thing that I always find exciting is trying to basically rewrite the biggest cliches because they're the things that inspire you to write is love and loss and life and death and friendship and love and all, you know, the big things. And so many songs have been written about these things. And so I think what one of my major pet hates is when lyrics get to the point where they're so parochial and so pointlessly on a plate that it's just ridiculous. As an example, I am I respect Desiree as an artist. I think she's a great singer. She's had a great a great career. However, saying I'd rather have a piece of toast in a song should be illegal. <laughs> that is, in my opinion, one of the worst lyrics of all time. So I think the lyric goes. Maybe I'll see a ghost. I'd rather have a piece of toast. It's sort of, when you read it, you're just like, they actually just put that in while they were working to go, oh, that's really funny. And then they just forgot to go back. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, there's there's definitely quite a few instances of that. Also, didn't he say Blu-ray in a song? Not cool. Or like texting. Didn't he say texting? Takes me out the moment. I'm it's a really, I think really you can point. get away with you can get away with it as a rapper because it's just a different context and it's a different way of delivering information if you're rapping on a song. If you're singing, you're not allowed to sing texting. It's official and it is now illegal in many different it's states. Singing, texting, or emailing is now illegal. <laughs> in my, in my, in my, I quite like this. This is starting my fascist book of songwriting. Uh, Katie's I'm pet in, hates. I'm up for it. <laughs> songwriting yeah. pet hates. Excellent. And and then there might be like it might be songwriting, and then general pet hates. Top ten would definitely be when the shower curtain sticks to you. I hate that. Yeah. I hate that. You know when it just keeps following you in the shower. I hate that. So that can be in the other half. It's just life in general. I'm liking this. What else is in the top ten of general pet hates? General pet hates, um, I really, I don't know why, but I really cannot stand the phrase, it is what it is. I hate it. 
Yeah. It winds me up so much. I've got to kind of get to the bottom of why, bottom of why that winds me up so much. But it really, it's like it is what it is. Of course it is. Yeah, or we'll cross. So it's all, it, of course it is. Why are you saying that? I, or, or we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. No, why don't we just fucking prepare effectively? Yeah, no. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh. Uh, amazing. But then there's, you know, I should also, I should temper this entire, this entire idea with a book of my, my, my pet loves. Well, as well, we're at April. Doesn't make as good reading though, does it? No, I think an audio book's good, um, or, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm liking the idea of a book because I'm just trying to do the maths here. It could just be in time for Christmas. Yeah. Got a publish Again, if there's any publishers listening, they'd be interested <laughs> any in Any publishers out there? Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll happily take a co-write on that one. That's all cool. I love that, I love that the, this podcast is just a portal for, you know, broadening my branding. Great. Yeah, Thank I know, you for that. No, it's, it's totally cool. I mean, you were probably expecting a kind of <laughs> professional interview, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> no! <laughs> right, thanks very much. I'll be speaking to you soon, Scott. Bye. <laughs> do, you see, do you see what I did there? Right, so um, I, I, put it up, I put it up on Twitter yesterday that I was going to be interviewing you. Um, some people had some yeah. se- serious questions, but I liked the not-so-serious question. Because um, people were Fantastic. asking about the, um, uh, I can't remember the name, so just, I'm sorry people that I can't remember your names because I've just taken a note of your question. Because loads of people were fighting over the Gretsch Falcon, they're saying, can you ask her if she can give me the Gretsch Falcon? Obviously Look, the answer that. They, can, they get the privilege of looking at the Gretsch Falcon when I do a gig. That should be enough. Absolutely. The greed, the greed disgusts me, you yeah? know. Step away from the Gretsch Falcon. Yeah, I know. You're never gonna have it. This is what I know. Do you know what I mean? I'll be Terrible. honest. See, see, when we're talking about pet hates, right? I'll just get my pet hates out as well, right? Well, we're yeah, at this, okay? See, when I post up questions, right? Or see, when I post yeah. up, I'm giving people the opportunity, right? I'm saying, hey, everybody, I've got Katie Tunstall coming on, or, or who was the one the other week? I've got George Clinton coming on, right? So, I'm, and, yeah. and, uh, so I had him coming on, and um, but the one that really went me up was when I posted up saying, hey, I've got Kyle Gass for Tenacious D. And you think, right, you've got an opportunity to ask Kyle Gass one question, okay? And people yeah. are posting up stupid shit like, ask him how big his cock is. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you, I know, I mean, that was a good question, but, uh, you know, but at the same time, I'm thinking, you've got one opportunity to, and I'm being, I'm being yeah. generous and, and just, uh, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here. I know it's your interview, but as we're talking about pet hates, that's the one thing I hate. And now I've just lost You have it. to take into account, Scott, that, the one issue that we that we we need to we need to make you know make a point about here is that you you are asking Twitter. That's also true. That's there therein lies the rub. Yeah. That basically you're going to get something back about a cock. That's how it works. Well, I'm all for that kind of stuff, but when it comes to the interviewing stage, you just... But I agree. Be... It's an opportunity. I completely agree. I agree. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity that everybody's squandered, and I think I've just lost about 30%, at least of my listeners, but, you know, hey-ho. Right? <laughs> I think... The, the, the ing- no, the ing- but I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, and I think that particularly in this day and age where I feel like control of the PR of artists is probably more than it used to be, not less. It feels like because the music industry is making less money than it did, there's almost more fear about how artists are promoted, how they're presented. And the artists themselves, I think, in general, are less badly behaved than they used to be. I agree. I think that this is a really, really important opportunity for people who are actually interested in artists and in music to ask questions the, the interviewers often don't, and it's why and it's why people like me get quite frustrated going through the promotional campaign of an album is that you just get asked quite boring shit a lot of the time, and it's stuff that you can find on Google yeah. or on Wikipedia, and it, and some of the best interviews I've had have been from like really young people who are asking you about creativity. How do you write songs? What do you feel like when you write them? Where does it come from? Where do you think it comes from? And it's just, you know, stuff that often I don't get asked, actually. But I've not been asked about Pet Hayes before, Scott. Yeah. So this is good. Yeah, I appreciate that. But now that you've pointed that out, it makes me think that I should have asked Kyle Gass how big his cock was, you know? Um, when you, when you... <laughs> There's no harm. But listen, I'll bit of one, a bit of the other. Yeah, I will be doing a part two of them at some stage, and there's an exclusive for everybody. So um, that will be my first question. Sorted. Thanks very much. And if it goes horribly wrong, and if he gets no offended, one. I'm going to blame you. 
Well, you should really blame Twitter, but you could blame me. Yes. You could say that I've asked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just keep an <laughs> eye on Twitter. Like yeah. How big is your cock? Yeah, if you could tweet that just around about the time, because I'll forget, yeah. and then we'll we'll make it no happen. Worries. Right. Okay. So maybe I'll maybe I'll kind of twist it around. You can say, "How do you feel about someone asking you how big your cock is?" <laughs> then it's not on you, you know. I like it. Right. I, I do. Yeah. I like that. You should you should do an interview. We'll interview them together. We'll make it happen. <laughs> right. So the the last album, Real to Real. Okay. Yeah. Now, I loved your explanation Amazing. of this. Yeah, you, you said that you, in the old days you like a record, you played it and then you spun it around because you felt that it was kind of two EPs, two albums. I like that. So will you ever go back to recording it on the computer, Pro Tools, or is it real to real for life, do you think? No, I think I will. I will and I'll go back to it because it's an amazing tool. It's an amazing... There's amazing freedom in recording on the computer and it depends how you're recording and that's the... That's the important thing is you've got to look at what you're making because that record was played live. It was a very down-tempo, gentle, very intimate album. And so it, it, it's going to catch that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to record that. And um, if you're doing, you know, if, you, if you're Interpol making your next record, you're not necessarily going to get the same level of difference with that kind of music on a computer as you would on a tape machine. It's going to sound slightly different, but I think that tape machine really comes into its own when there's a lot of space right. in the music. Um, because if you think about a vinyl record, it's really so much of the enjoyment of listening to a vinyl record is hearing the record itself without the music on it is hearing the actual physical record, hearing the hiss, hearing the ambience, hearing the click at the beginning of the track, you know. Um, but I think from a sonic point of view, it's, um, for me personally anyway, I, I definitely get more out of listening to more spacious music on vinyl than I do uh, any other way. Um, mm. And... I think that, but you know, then, but then that having said, you know, someone like the Black Keys, I think they, they, their music would suit what tape machine does. But when it's all compressed and you're downloading it from iTunes, I'm not sure it makes a huge amount of difference anyway. I think probably more difference it makes in, in terms of if you're streaming or buying stuff off iTunes is the attitude with which you've made the music. And, the huge difference for me on that record was that because it's tape, I couldn't go in and edit my vocals. I, I had to just go for the best take. And it immediately rules out looking at your music and trying to perfect it. All, all you, you, that, that part of you switches off because it's not available to you. So what you then concentrate on is, does this take make me feel like I'm telling the truth? Does this take make me feel emotional? And you and, and that and I was working with Hal Gelb on that record, and he, um, you know, he's an oddball. He would be he would be kind of on his on his laptop in the corner, fiddling away with some headphones on, and he'd sort of be half listening to the takes as we were recording, and all of a sudden he would jump out of the couch and just go, "That was the one, Kay," because he's like, "I believed you, I believed you that time." And I'd go, but ah, oh, but I made a load of mistakes. And then we'd sit down and listen to it, and it just didn't matter. The mistakes were actually really beautiful and really endearing and very human. And I would, I would impair that the quality of that recording if I went and fixed anything because it's on it. Interesting. Plus, um, yeah, and this falls under our pet hates again. You can't listen to Django Reinhardt on a CD or an MP3. It's got to be vinyl. No, you can't. I think, I mean, I, I actually listen to him all the time in the car. I just find it, I really enjoy listening to him. I mean, I enjoy listening to him all the time. He's someone that I always go back to if I just want to listen to something to chill me out and feel like I'm a little gypsy wife smoking a cigarillo in a caravan, which is a very pleasant feeling for me. Um, maybe not for everybody, but it just takes me to a very happy place. And... Um, but again, because it's because it's and the thing is because of the, the because of the quality of the recording at that time, 
it doesn't matter how you listen to Django Reinhardt, it listen sounds like you're listening to a record. He's awesome, it's isn't it? crackling away the whole time. So I, I do love that about it. I get the same thing with Ivor Cutler, actually. Right. Ivor Cutler and Django Reinhardt are basically my two therapists when I'm, when I'm needing help. I just stick them on. and I remember I used to listen to Ivor Cutler if I was in it. A lot of the time I was in an airport and kind of losing my blog with life and how ridiculously stressful sitting around not doing nothing, waiting for a plane can be. And I, I just listen to Ivor Cutler and just be be very happy. Be my little ear blanket for half an hour. So Los Angeles, why the why the move? How long have you been out there now? Um, I've just been out here on and off really for the last six months and I I've um I've spent a bit of time in the past here obviously coming over and touring and and then one day I uh, I got some work down by sorry about screaming child by the way. That's just started right now. It's not mine. Um, don't take responsibility for it. Um, but I had some work down by the beach in Santa Monica, and it was the first time I'd seen that side of L.A. And uh, it was just a completely different place. And I was like, oh, this is why people live in L.A. <laughs> and it was the only place I'd ever been in my life where people kind of, if they have a Tuesday off, they just bum around and go to the beach. They're not kind of running around going, oh, my God, I should be doing some work. So I really fancied a bit of that. And obviously just the film the film side of stuff out here, because I've done a really great uh, film composition lab with the Sundance Institute last summer. I'd always been interested in scoring for film and writing for film um, and just sort of hadn't had time with the touring. And so just immerse myself in that and just absolutely loved it. It's a completely different way of approaching music. It's a completely different job. You're working for someone else. You're trying to get their vision um, to its complete state. And uh, it, it's, it just demands a completely different part of your brain. So um, it was really kind of inviting to expand my expand my mind in that way. And, and, and that's what I've been doing. And it's fantastic. I've been really enjoying it. So how did that come about then, the whole um, soundtrack, writing for different films? How did that uh, take place initially? Well, I'd, I'd written a couple of songs for films in the past. I've written uh, Nick Moran, directed a really great film called uh, The Kid, um, which I'd written a song for and obviously had had songs from my records used uh, um, in, in film and TV. And it was always interesting, particularly with The Devil Wears Prada, because that was a really big one at the beginning of my career where it was used for the opening of the movie. And it was really interesting seeing that they'd taken a song and it was used in a really, really different context from the way that I'd intended it. And so it was interesting seeing how the, the songs could kind of be bent in their in their interpretation like that when you put a visual to it. Um and I suppose for me, I mean, I studied music classically. I don't think it makes a huge difference, but it certainly gave me a capacity for writing that I, I don't really utilize as much when I'm songwriting. So, for instance, doing string arrangements and doing um, orchestral arrangement and working with slightly more unusual orchestral instruments. Um, and then also just doing stuff that's basically more ambient and more um, atmospheric than, you know, trying to hit the mark with a three-and-a-half-minute song. So it definitely, it's it's a part of creativity that's always interested me, but it hasn't been massively relevant a lot of the time to what I want to do with my singer-songwriting career. So I was finding myself just getting quite frustrated, I think is the true answer to the question, where I was just recording records, touring them, going back in, writing recording a record going back out to it and kind of not using up the slightly weirder part of my brain and I and as I looked at my albums and the trajectory of what was happening I could see that I was getting more and more interested by production and intricacy and complexity which aren't necessarily things that feed always feed positively into just writing songs so I thought, right, I'm gonna just I'm gonna put the put the songwriting on the back burner for a minute here and, and really just see what I'm capable of in this area and the and I was I had a gig at the Sundance Film Festival, um partly to kind of 
meet people in the film world a bit more and um, ended up applying for the Sundance Institute Composers Lab. They do lots of different labs. They do writers' labs, directors' labs. Quentin Tarantino and Guillermo del Toro and all these great people have come through the system of this nurturing. Um, and uh, so it's two weeks up in Northern California at Skywalker Ranch, which is George Lucas's like utopia of recording and mixing for sound. And um, it's, um, it's I mean, it's incredible. It's just that I mean, you just feel like you've died in a plane crash on the way there and ends up in like sound engineer heaven. <laughs> and you have, a little, you have a little room to yourself and four very, very big Hollywood composers. We had James Newton Howard, Harry Gregson Williams, Alan Silvestri, real huge names in, in the composer world. Come, come up and spend an evening with you telling them how they got into it and then they give you a three minute scene from a movie that they've scored and they give you 24 hours to score it and then it gets played on one of the best cinema screens in the world and you get critiqued ah! <laughs> it was really intense and then the second week that you're there you get to work with a director who's actually giving you a couple of scenes from a movie in progress and you work with them and it was just it was the mo one of the most mind-expanding things I've done as an adult. It was really a game-changer. And what I could tell from it was, oh, straight away, which was really great, was it was going to make me approach my own material for albums in a kind of more broad-spectrum way as well, which I think was really cool. Right, you mentioned getting your songs critiqued there. I'm, I'm interested, when you write your songs, do you have a kind of listening committee, so to speak? Do you have a, a couple of pals that you'll kind of run the songs by to see essentially if, if, if you know, if they're any good? I've, I've never thought of it like that. <laughs> I think um, it's it's whoever's lucky or unlucky enough to be nearby at the time, I think. Um I, I, I'm, I stopped working with my manager of 10 years about six months ago. We just kind of naturally came to a, to a place where we wanted to kind of... So he, he went over to New Zealand, I was coming over here, and we'd had a great run, and so we decided to, to call it a day and, and celebrate what happened. And, and he was definitely someone that I would always use as a sounding board. Um, but... You know, there's de there's definitely people whose opinion I, I I trust, but I don't tend to send stuff. I th I don't know if it's because I'm paranoid about it getting leaked. I just find that I still write my songs with paper and pen, and I don't. I, I use. I have to say, the iPhone is amazing because I put all my ideas into my little recorder, so that's brilliant. And I'm totally in trouble if I lose it. But in general, until the songs are done, I don't really like turning them into anything sendable. I don't enjoy doing that to them before they're done. So um, it's usually if I just have a guitar and a friend over and I'll just, I've got a mate staying with me from New York at the moment. I'm like, check this out. She's like, brilliant. <laughs> and we jump around the living room. And that's it, really. <laughs> I have to say, as much as I trust my friend, no one's ever told me that what I'm doing is shit. So I don't know how much I can completely trust them. <laughs> Final question, Katie. Tell me one yeah. song, one song that you wish you'd written. Ooh. That's really hard to pick one. Oh, one right, song. Right, we'll, we'll, I tell you what, we'll go for a couple of different things, right? Give me a Beatles song that you wish you'd written. A Beatles song? Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that I'd written, and I always get the title of it wrong, which is a bit embarrassing, but is it Tomorrow Never Knows? Yes. Yes, because I think... I'm not a massive Beatles fan. I really respect them, and I think that they changed the face of modern music and everything. I agree, obviously agree with all that. But they're not a band that I've always I've listened to a lot and particularly latched onto a lot. Um, but that song has always amazed me and amazes me every single time I hear it because it sounds like it could have come out last week, and that's I sort of don't understand. <laughs> and that's mental. I mean, and that's basically what's incredible about the Beatles in general is that they, they were so far ahead of everybody else and that, just that beat that that break beat, it was like it defined the 90s Yeah, it was very, uh, Chemical, you know? Brother, Chemical Brothers based their whole career on it, didn't they? 
yeah, like cool shaker we're using it. And yes, yeah. Like so many different, and still now it's like it, I hear that tune and I'm like, if I heard that on the radio, I would be well impressed with that, and I'd go and find out who that band was. And I wouldn't, I would never think it was an old song. Cool. It's love the way, but it's more, it's more about the production and the and the, and the arrangement rather than the, the actual song. I just love how what they did musically. Um, singer songwriter song. I would have to say, and it's really difficult to choose because obviously I'd want to. Joni Mitchell is is there, and I, but I would, I absolutely love "It's Too Late" by Carole King. I think it's just such a genius, simple, beautiful piece of writing, and uh, you know, you, one of the songs where you do know the lyrics straight away. Um, it's just such a beautiful song and such a fantastic marriage of music and work. Katie, it's been a blast. I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. Yeah. And I'm not just saying this, right? I didn't feel like I was actually working and doing an interview. I just felt as if it was... Say that again. <laughs> I, I didn't feel as if... just a little chat on the phone. Yeah, I just felt as if it was two people ranting about shit, you know? And that is the type of thing <laughs> that you hear each and every week on this podcast. See, Katie, thanks you see, for- if I... If- if I had my own interviewing podcast where I interview, I would just actually call it rantingaboutshit.com. Well, like I said... It's underrated, Scott. It's well underrated. And Exactly. I've got a funny feeling there's going to be a part two of this. There's going to be a part three on the lead up to the release <laughs> of your book of pet hates on, and just hates <laughs> in the world in general. Um, a it's going to happen. There's a lot of hate and I love every minute of it. Uh, Katie Tunsil, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. We've got, we've got to look at it as eradicating, eradicating negativity from the world. Yes. I, I, eradicating the negative aspects of our planet. I think that's the title of the next Let's album. Let's work on that together. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, it's been a pleasure. Nice one, Scott. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Do-do, do I'm with producer Ron as we're putting together the worst barbershop quartet ever. Um, well, the first half of the barbershop quartet anyway. Um, I want to say a big thanks to a bunch of different people. See the sax uh, quartet thing that you're hearing there? It's from a guy called Mike Smith who is one of the best musicians I have ever been fortunate enough to share the stage with, as pretentious as that sounds. MikeSax.co.uk Go and check this guy out, right? Brilliant jazz artist from Liverpool um, As you'll check out on his website I'm on his website as we speak And this guy's available for any sort of sessions He's an amazing piano player as well He's a really good friend of mine um, I just want to say a big shout out to Mike Because I called him, as I usually do And Ron knows exactly what I'm talking about, our producer I called him saying Listen, I need um, a, a saxophone intro for the Katie Tunstall podcast Pick a song that she done, and I need it in, you know, 10 minutes. And Mike, just knowing who I am, thought, you know, typical you, and put it together in, like, 10 minutes, and that's one of the many reasons why Mike is a legend. Ron, do you concur with that assessment? I do concur. You concur. Um, Also, and Mike is actually responsible for putting me in touch with Katie Dunstall as well. That should have probably been the first thing that I said, because that's kind of the more important part of it, not just the theme music. Um, so Mike said, Scott, check out a podcast called Soda Jerker, okay? Sodajerker.com, I mentioned it at the top of this interview, okay? Now, Simon and Brian that run this podcast, it's geared towards singer-songwriters, and they interview a bunch of different people, uh, including likes of Harry Shearer, uh, Jeff Daniels has been on there, uh, Rufus Wainwright, and Katie Tunstall, okay? So I got in touch with the boys. I said, brilliant podcast, really like it. And long story short, I asked them to put in t- me in touch with Katie Tunstall, and they did exactly that. Their podcast is brilliant, so thejerker.com. Go check it out, and check out makesax.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. It is, of course, available at SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio. It is available on scottkiwi.com. It is available on iTunes. Rate, review subscribe do all those wonderful things and if you one thing that i'll you'll notice that i cannot do is two things at once because i'm trying to google katie tunstall's website to also give a plug to her website which is katietunstall.com as i've just found out you can also follow her on twitter at katie tunstall there you go ron that's all the plugs for this week follow north ron north on twitter as well his twitter handle is north fee that's why i'm getting a little bit tongue-tied there my god 
scottkerry.com forward slash podcast rate review subscribe as I said email in your love advice issues problems so on and so forth Music at gmail.com that's my public email use it wisely don't give me abuse uh, and we will see you guys next week <laughs> <laughs>